This is what they call Mexican. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty. Are you shitting me? Yeah, it's pretty. Can I? Uh-huh. It was made for a wealthy landowner, a nobleman, by a poor Mexican gunsmith. He fashioned this gun as a gift to go along with the hopes that the nobleman's son would take his only daughter's hand in marriage. The townspeople waited three months to catch the first glimpse of the pistol. Finally, the day had come. No one had ever laid eyes on a more beautiful gun. It was everything they thought it would be. Some even thought it was too beautiful to look at. It was considered to be an honor and good luck to be the first hand that fires a newly fashioned gun, especially one as beautiful as this, made for the hand of a nobleman. Townsman was in a trance at the gun's flawless craftsmanship. It backfired, killing him instantly. Legend has it that it's been cursed ever since. What? It hasn't harmed me any, though. You know, I just uh, I love to look at it. Hey, everybody! Uh, welcome back. We are here with Uncanny Cinema. I'm Linton, as usual, and I've got a somewhat new panel of guests, a uh, couple returning people, and uh, a new person. So we've got Eric joining us again. Hello. We've got Jimmy, uh, which may be his first time chronologically. We have some horror ones coming up. Uh, can't remember. Where, did you just do, was Antrim your first? It was. So I don't okay. know whether to say hi again or hi for the first time. Everyone. <laughs> this, might, this, may be, this is probably for the first time. So uh, welcome, Jimmy, for the first time. And, and that's a hint that we will be doing Antrim coming up uh, for the Spookening October releases and then we have doug joining us here today hey everybody that's doug okay so uh today we're gonna do uh, a little different one than different speed than some of the ones we've done in the past so this is the mexican it is a 2001 gore verbinski movie very early movie for him this is comes uh shortly after he did the ring and kind of uh got on the scene but it's before he did any of the Pirates movies and before he did anything else, you know, fairly big in Hollywood. But this does, uh, you know, this movie might have, you know, not been on your radar, but it does have some pretty big stars of the day and kind of still. Brad Pitt and Julie Roberts are the leads. James Gandolfini has a pretty sizable uh, supporting part. And J.K. Simmons pops up 
and Bob Balaban. And there's one kind of cameo role that I think is worth saving and talking about down the road. But yeah, so it is a 2001 kind of genre mashup. There's a lot of things going on in it. We'll talk about the genre aspects coming up, but the closest you could probably call it is like a light thriller or a comedic thriller, but there's definitely other genres happening as well. So the Mexican, what do we think? Opening thoughts. I'll jump in. Uh, yeah, um, so I, I actually, there hasn't really been a Gore Verbinski movie that I haven't at least um, appreciated. Uh, I would say I appreciate this one as well. Uh, it's not one of my favorite, uh, one of his outputs, but um, yeah, I mean, overall, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was enjoyable, but I think it, it missed the mark on some of the, the things it was trying to do that other movies of its ilk um, have done, have done better. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in, but uh, that, that was kind of my initial thought there. Yeah, I, I agree that this was like one of the Gorovinsky movies I had never seen, and I had always known about it, was always told by people who had seen it that it was pretty good, and I, was, I expected it to be good because I'm a yeah Verbinski fan. Um, I did like it. Yeah, I wasn't. I won't say I was disappointed by it. Maybe I hyped it up in my head because I thought it was kind of a hidden classic. Um, but I still felt it was it was it was still good. But I think I think you're right about how maybe because I've seen other movies that attempt the kind of humorous thriller um, that use a lot of these same aspects that have just been done much better. Uh, that's why I don't think maybe maybe if I had watched it when it came out, it would have been more impressive to me. And I guess my my thoughts are slightly different. I, I thought it was pretty boring. I don't think it was bad. I don't think it was – I was disappointed in it. Uh, I just thought it was uh, not as entertaining as I thought it was going to be considering the director, considering the actors and actresses that are in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of aligned with uh, Eric and Jimmy. I mean, I'm, I'm not all that far off of Doug. I, I, I feel like we're all kind of in a place of like, oh, it's okay. It's got some strong parts. Uh, you know, I think Doug was like lesser uh, on it than some of us. But yeah, I'm, I'm also a pretty big Verbinski fan, as I was saying to Eric before we started this. I've watched all of his movies, and he's never made a movie that I didn't at least appreciate or enjoy. And I think Jimmy said kind of the same thing. And so this is like on the lower end of his stuff for me. Um, like The Weatherman I've also seen, which I don't think is a bad film by any means. It's just not something that I'm like super crazy about. But that would probably be like my least favorite of his movies. Um, but again, like he's a director who I don't think has made an actual bad film. I don't think this is a bad film. I think it's got some kind of flashes of brilliance. It's got some really strong parts. For me, it doesn't totally gel and live up to the strength of those parts. So what you're left with is like, oh yeah, some of this is pretty cool. And then some of it's just kind of there. And so I, I can definitely understand why it's something that hasn't caught on a ton or why people haven't sought it out as much because it probably doesn't have that word of mouth. I saw it in the theater when it originally came out. I didn't know really anything about him. I think just kind of the, the way it was probably sold at the time as you know like a comedic thriller 
looked appealing to me. I think Jimmy, you've mentioned uh, off the podcast, uh, like uh, Guy Ritchie. Yeah, yeah, Guy. Like you're kind of comparing to like Guy Ritchie, and this does come like shortly after Snatch and Lockstock was I think like '98 or '97. Then you have like Tarantino stuff, and you have some Coen Brothers stuff, which does kind of comedic thriller elements. So I'm sure all of those are reasons why I was seeing it in a theater in 2001. But yeah, in terms of does it totally stack up, I would agree, you know, like not totally, but I think it does have redeeming things. Yeah, did anyone try and look up like a uh, context of this movie in terms of like how it got made? I was trying to find something. I didn't know if it was like something Verbinski was kind of handed, um, but it kind of felt like it was uh, an instance where, to your point, uh, when he had had some early success, and so maybe this was like his next, like, all right, take a couple of big stars, try and make a, a fun movie out of it. And, you know, you get Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts in a movie together and it's like, oh man, it's going to be a fun romp. But then like the entire, most of the movie, they're kind of separated. Yeah, which so, is weird. Yep. It just, yeah, I don't, I didn't know if it was like he wanted to do one thing and then maybe the script was doing another, but. So, so what I saw, I, I mean, there's not a ton I mean, I'm sure there's like maybe some articles out there that are written about it. I wasn't diving too deep, but from what I saw on it is that it was, it was meant to be a smaller film. I mean, I think it's written to be a smaller film without big stars. It's probably written to be, I mean, kind of like Snatch was not, didn't have huge stars other than like getting Brad Pitt in it. And then Lockstock definitely wasn't huge stars. So I think it was meant to be whoever wrote it. Uh, looks like it was written by... J.H. Wyman, whatever that is. Yeah. I looked him up, and he, I think, worked mainly on the show Fringe after that. I don't think he did a whole okay. lot else. Yeah, he uh, looks like he has some other writing credits, nothing I've ever heard of uh, prior to the Mexican that, like, pops out. But, so it was probably supposed to be sort of a, you know, more of an indie kind of thing, something that can get into some festivals kind of idea. But my understanding is, that Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt wanted to work together and one of them came across the script and then they decided, okay, well, this could be the thing. And so then I think that elevated it to, well, now it's a movie with big stars. Whereas before it wasn't going to be that. It was going to be more of like a quirky little thing. So that might be some of the sensibilities you're sensing of how it like, maybe it's like pulling at its seams and I can shed some light on this too. I, I read that um, originally it was supposed to be a David Finchner project. Yeah. Like he was attached to How it. Or weird that have I know. Yeah. I, I saw the thing on Fincher and I was like, cause this movie is like pretty lighthearted. There's a, a few graphic, you know, violent parts, but like, it's pretty lighthearted. And I was trying to imagine how dour it would be under Fincher. Yeah. And just like devoid of all happiness. <laughs> Maybe it would have been better. It might have been. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. love Fincher. It's yeah, you know, it's not an issue. But well, that's the thing about this script. I mean, if you look at it and you're a director, you can take this in a lot of different ways. You can like lean toward one genre or the other, depending on what your vision for the script is. More so, I think, than other scripts. Yeah, the genre aspects kind of interesting because um, I noted it's it's kind of a it's a weird mashup of different genres it's i i refer to it early on as like a comedic thriller it, it definitely has comedy aspects it has moments that are meant to be sort of like a thriller but a lot of parts you're not supposed to take seriously you're not supposed to feel danger not the way if you're watching a 
Fincher movie or some other kind of normal thriller. So there's like elements of thriller, there's elements of comedy, there's elements of romantic comedy, there's gangster aspects, there's definitely Western aspects, and there's road trip aspects. So like there's all these genres mashing and it, that's not bad. It's kind of makes it interesting and unique, but it also might make the movie feel like as you're watching it, like what the fuck is this trying to be? Yeah. Yeah. I think that if you try to like mix too many genres together, you run the risk of it actually being bad. I mean, if you're trying to throw too many things together and it's not done in the right way, then it's like, well, what are we doing here? Yeah, I think there's some aspects of this movie that work really well. Um, like, there were some um, plot points that I was, like, super invested in. But then there are other pieces that I just was like, yeah, it, it, can we, let's move this thing along. And I think that's kind of where you're getting that, Doug, where it's like, this movie was a little over two hours. And you could really feel that time. Whereas I think if it was, like, an hour and a half and, you know, just kind of really moved. Because I think both Lockstock and Snatch are kind of a sh- on the shorter end. And it's just constant energy um, so that, you know, it, it moves at a pace that this one felt much, much slower. Yeah, I think the it felt like all the parts with Brad Pitt moved really fast. But when they were cutting and building the relationship with Julia Roberts and James Gandolfini, that was like more of what I think they felt they had to slow down on because they wanted you to like be invested in their like blossoming friendship because uh, that did seem to play an important part. Yeah, maybe if they had sped through that, it wouldn't have felt as legitimate with what they were trying to do. And it, yeah, it is very hard to like imagine all those things kind of working together and like you know cutting twenty minutes from the movie. And they did cut a significant amount. I I, I watched the uh, DVD version and I watched the deleted scenes, and there was oh, like really? 30, 30 minutes of it. Oh wow! So yeah, uh, we can go into some like specific problems and gaps and things but since you saw that i'm curious because jimmy had raised the jk simmons character kind of disappears do, do they explain that in oh the... yeah there's a whole thing okay is there really oh i gotta hear it. all right so let's <laughs> let's hold off on that um so yeah i'll just uh give kind of a brief rundown of basic beats of the plot and then we can dive into some more specifics So the essential idea is that Brad Pitt works for kind of like a a low-level mob outfit. Uh, He's in the, do they, where's, where are they starting? American Southwest somewhere, because they're going to Nevada. It might, might be in LA. Just driving there? Yeah, they're they're going to Las Vegas. They're going to live there. He and his girlfriend is, uh, is the idea that it's, it's coming up. But, uh, so he may be in LA, um, but definitely uh, in the West, you know, near Vegas. So he works for this kind of low-level mob outfit through kind of some, you know, just happenstance, got him embroiled with them, and he has to do various jobs for them. He's supposed to be on his last job, and things get botched, so they need him to do one more job. And that job is to go to Mexico and retrieve a pistol, which is referred to as the Mexican, which has this kind of tortured and troubled history that stretches back decades to um, like colonial Mexico. And along the way, he's coming across different groups who are wanting the pistol for different reasons. And he's coming, he's getting the pistol, he's losing the pistol, that kind of thing. And meanwhile, Julie Roberts gets essentially kidnapped by a mafia hitman. 
and she forms a which is played by james james gandolfini she forms a friendship with him over the course of that kidnapping and so we're following that storyline along the same points that we're following the brad pitt chasing down the gun storyline and i think both of them have their strong points i think both of them have good sequences and moments in there but yeah i would agree if you cut it down and made this quicker um it might serve the movie better if it was leaner yeah so i wanted to see what you guys thought in terms of which of the two plot lines you guys thought were the stronger of the two um i personally uh like loved everything with james gandolfini um i thought julia roberts felt like a completely different character when she was with him as opposed to when she was around brad pitt and maybe that was intentional but it just felt like their like their relationship didn't quite find its footing and i know they're supposed to be like bickering a lot um but it just it didn't play right with me and i felt like brad pitt as a whole um didn't quite know what he was doing here and he was like trying to do that Brad Pitt charm, but I don't know. It just it, it like was he supposed to be dumb? Was he supposed to be like dumb and just like kind of figuring things out? But at the same time, like he's he's you know outthinking people, and I, I just couldn't figure out like where his character was supposed to land. Hundred percent agree. Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that because it did felt it felt like at times he was kind of doing his character from like Burn After Reading, but he yeah. never got too far into that. So it's like. He's kind of a dope, but also, like, he did, like, handle certain situations, like, pretty well to where he wasn't, like... Because you knew he wasn't, like, a professional at this job. Like, he kind of got roped into doing a few jobs that I guess they thought he could handle. So he's not supposed to be, like, James Gandolfini, where he can just, like, go in and, like, do shit suavely and, like, take care of things. But he did, like, when he got the pistol back initially when he like crashed the car on purpose and then got the guy to come out and like that whole scene, like it is a bit messy, but it still seems like he has like a certain confidence in what he's doing and he's just not a complete idiot. But other times, yeah, it did seem like he was just kind of a, a dummy. I felt like they, they didn't present him as being outright stupid, but like out of his depths. And then the movie allows him to kind of get the upper hand by figuring some things out. So I think the goal is you're supposed to assume oh, this guy can't get it together. Like, you know, this is, I mean, the vibe of the movie is is way too lighthearted for you to ever think Brad Pitt's going to get shot in the head. Like, I just Mm. feel like that that's never a real threat. But I think it is trying to kind of set you up to make you think that, uh, like at one point she says that he's been Forrest Gumping his way through this, which is kind of true in how they present him in this like kind of goofy way. But then there are moments where he does, you know, like show some intelligence. So I think that's like, I think that's intended by the script to play a little sleight of hand for the audience. And I don't think Brad Pitt did a terrible job at it. I think part of it is just like, if you're playing this kind of ditzy character that, like like you said, is probably not stupid, but at least doesn't know what he's doing in these type of situations, and like is supposed to lack confidence and be bumbling, And but then it's Brad Pitt, and he has like, you know, the chiseled jaw, and the scruff, and the perfect clothes, and the piercing stare, and you're like, I don't know that this fits together. <laughs> and like, he's dating you? Julia Roberts. <laughs> right, it's a beautiful, like a, hmm, so something's off here. I, yeah, I think that's where I... Go ahead, Lynn. Oh, I was going to say on on her, because Jimmy kind of commented on, on their relationship a little bit. I did think they did her a disservice early on. He had mentioned, 
that the way she plays with Jerry, which is Pitt's character, versus the way she plays with Leroy, which is James Gandolfini's character, is different. It probably is intentional to show a different side of her. But I did think they... I don't even know if the movie's like being sexist intentionally or unintentionally, or even if this would be considered sexism, but I don't think it does her character any favors in that when Brad Pitt at the very beginning of the movie is like, hey, I got to do this one job. I know I said it was going to be this other one, but they're making me do this other, this, this, but that job didn't work. It, it got fucked up and you know it. And she was kind of directly responsible for it as far as yeah, the plot goes. Yeah, she screwed it up. And so the job didn't get completed. So now he's forced to do this other job. And the mobsters are literally like, if you don't do this, we will shoot you in the head and we will like put your bones out in the desert or whatever they say to him. So like the stakes are put out there of, I'm going to get murdered if this doesn't happen. <laughs> she doesn't care. She like doesn't, a more reasonable and a lot of like thrillery kind of things, even a comedic thriller, I think a more reasonable approach would have been her character like being fucking terrified. Like, like how deep are you in with these guys? I didn't know any of this stuff. Like, but she like doesn't bat an eye at this. She's still fighting with him. She's still demanding that they go to Las Vegas like that night instead of waiting like a couple <laughs> days. Like that's the issue at the beginning of the movie and why they break up is he has to do this thing or he'll get killed. And because of that, they're going to have to delay their Vegas trip for two or three days. Like that's it. And But she throws him out and is throwing his stuff off the balcony and it's Julia Roberts and she's a good actress. So we're not like, we don't, I don't think we hate her uh, like immediately, but I think it makes us kind of question like, well, who is this character? Are we supposed to like her? Or, or is she going to be bad? And then like, as the movie moves on, we're like, oh no, she's okay. But that opening stuff with her just really makes her seem irrational and, yeah. and just that, yeah. not good. That was my thought as well. Cause I was like, yeah, I figured you weren't supposed to hate her because she wasn't, she wasn't over the top like naggy to where you were like, oh, this is like a stereotype character, and he has to like, he'll fall in love with someone else because she's yeah. just care about his well being. Because there's like, I was trying to think like, how else can he explain the situation to her that he doesn't have a choice, and like, what is it going to take for her to be like, oh, I, I don't like that you have to do this, but I guess since you're going to be killed if you don't, <laughs> I understand because he just. Yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't relate it to her. And I was like, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to do either if I was Brad Pitt. Like, it's just like, this is the situation. And you like have his, to... his life is literally on the line and she's acting like he's like going out for a cold one with the boys. Like, like, <laughs> that's her irritation with the situation. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it plays very well. Uh, Jimmy, you had some stuff on there uh, on Pitt or their relationship, I think. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I. I, I know you're, you know, and I think that's part of the, the reason with the movie that it doesn't quite work. I actually watched the trailer to see how they spun this, um, you know, because it's like, oh, it's Brad, it's Brad and uh, Julia. Like, mm -hmm. I'm assuming audiences are going in expecting to get like a fun, like Brad and Julia romp. And they, I mean, I will give the trailer some, some credit. They didn't come right out and just be like, you're going to love Brad and Julie in this one. <laughs> like they actually kind of give you the, the thought of like, okay, the, you know, it's a, it, it is a thriller, it, but there's some comedy. And I will say the music in the trailer was very like, doo, 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 you know, just kind of like hunky dory. Um, so I, I think if it were me, and I think part of the reason actually why I haven't seen this movie is I just assumed, uh, it was just kind of like a meh 
movie with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts that just didn't get a lot of traction. But yeah, I, I just don't think um, I just don't think they played quite well, and that's why I actually thought the Julia Roberts James Gandolfini relationship was the strongest of the movie, and uh, I actually think Gandolfini probably should have been nominated for an Oscar for this for this performance. Yeah, you brought that up, and you were wondering what he would have lost to, and so I got the list on that. So the other nominees of that year, I haven't seen all of these, um, you know, or the, the performances and all these. So John Voight and Ali, which I never saw Ali, so I'm not sure. I mean, I think he played Howard Cosell. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, what it says okay. here, Howard Cosell. Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast, uh, you know, which I remember him doing like a good job. I haven't seen that. Uh, Ian McKellen in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. I mean... Ian McKellen deserves all the Oscars in the world. Um, so if he had won for that, that had been great. But uh, Ethan Hawke in Training Day, I would say, you know, he's not as good as uh, Denzel Washington in his role. So, you know, to me, I wouldn't like push for that. And then Jim Broadbent is who won for Iris, Iris. which is a movie I've never seen. I've seen that one and it's, he's very good in it. Okay. It's him and Judy Bench. She plays the writer, um, uh, Iris Lowry, I believe. Okay. I've read one of her books. She's a novelist, and it's about their relationship. It's it's pretty good, but yeah, Broadbent, I'm also a big fan of, and he is very good in that movie. But yeah, so I those... love Jim Broadbent in general. I think he's a lot of fun, but uh, I I did look at um, Iris, and you know, I was trying to see like what the movie was about, and I gotta say, it, it you know, without having ever seen it or seen a trailer or just you know, just kind of general, getting a general feel. I'm like, wow, that seems like a yawner. <laughs> I'm sure Jim Bar- Broadbent was great. I'm sure Judy Dench was great, but it's probably one that's like, yeah, okay, that was. Yeah, fine. yeah. I mean, it's a movie about an aging novelist going through some shit. Is like, especially one you haven't really might not have heard of because she's not like the most famous. And it, so it's like, I wouldn't have even known about this relationship and why it's even important. And yeah, it's just mostly two people talking, but. Um, well, and even even yeah. some of the others, like I could see Gandolfini. Like again, I, I haven't seen Ali, so maybe John Voight gave an amazing performance as Howard Cosell. But I could also easily see that being something where it's like, oh, John Voight is playing a famous person we've heard of, and he's under makeup, so uh, Oscar nomination. <laughs> like I mean, I again, he, nail it there. <laughs> he, he might he might have done something great, but I I, I do agree with you that Gandolfini's uh, part in this. If if he would have been nominated, I would not have questioned it. It would not be unusual. And then Ben Kingsley, like I remember him being good in Sexy Beast. I don't know if it, you know, necessitates a a nomination. And then Ethan Hawke, I I feel kind of the same way, where it's like I can see it, but it's not like a blowing me out of the water. So yeah, on, on that point, I would side with you that I think uh, he easily could have and probably should have been nominated. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I take Doug. <laughs> Doug the, really loved I'm Iris. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't see it. Actually, I didn't see it. But uh, I, I feel like in a lot of uh, James Gandolfini films, he's playing the same type of character. And albeit this one's a little bit different than the standard brutish thug that he plays, uh, it still is kind of a brutish thug uh, that that talks in the same way. Right, like, but here's the thing: like, if you've seen him give interviews, he's also just like playing himself, like, in a lot of the stuff that he does. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm not going to say his performance was bad. I thought his performance was good. I thought Julie Roberts was good in it, and I thought that James Gandolfini was one of the best parts of the film. The performance was, was really good. I, I don't think it was Oscar-worthy, and um, it didn't blow me out of the water, I guess. Wow, tough crowd. <laughs> I will is. say, after having seen who was nominated that year, I feel even stronger about it, but... <laughs> If I can agree that he, right. that he oh, man, it was... deserved the nomination at least. Yeah, uh, I, I, I feel pretty strongly that a nomination was deserved. I, I can't speak to Iris since I haven't seen it. And like Broadbent is always exceptionally good in everything he's ever in. And so I'm totally fine living in a world where Jim Broadbent has an Oscar. So <laughs> that's okay. But yeah, you know, like when you're talking like nominees, though, there's always some room for, uh, you know, this guy could have had it. So... Um, all right. What do we think? What do we think stands out? What do we think works? We've talked, we'll talk more problems, I'm sure, as we go along here. But what are some of the highlights of the film? Let's talk about the, the gun subplot, like the guns story for a little bit. Oh, yeah. I, mean, that, I think we all like that. I mean, that was, that was really good. Just, I was invested in the plot of the gun, maybe more than I was invested in, in the plot of the film. I I, I've that. actually cut out the sections of the gun and I have them saved just as little mini movies from myself, uh, free of this film. No. So if you haven't seen the film, the basic they're, they're following, they're trying to get this gun and there is a story that is being told via flashbacks. And every time you're in the flashback, it's like a camera reel starts spinning and it's shot like it's an old timey film and it's taking place in some Mexican village in like the 1870s or 80s or something. And you get little bits of the story. You get three times throughout the narrative. So Brad Pitt is told the story of the gun in parts and it's a device that's been used in other things before, but I think it's being used. I think we all probably liked it. We can talk more about it, but it's, uh, it's being used really well here. And during those sections, you have some fantastic spaghetti Western music coming in. Uh, Al the great Alan Silvestri did the score. And the score in general has some fun bits, but the score during the, the story of the gun uh, really pops and has that good Ennio Morricone sound. But yeah, you get those three. And as, you, as the story unfolds, you find more about how the gun was made and what happened with it. So we're all big fans of the gun, I think. That's a good MacGuffin right there. Uh, yeah, no, I liked uh, how they uh, kind of did it in parts, so you got a little piece of the story um, as you're going along in the movie. Um, and, you know, kind of seeing, like, the, the little uh, gunsmith who falls in love with the uh, town's daughter. Yeah, like, who, whose daughter was it? It was <laughs> uh, the, guy that, the main, the main gunmaker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was the, the gunsmith, gunsmith and then his, his assistant, gunsmith. and his assistant was in love with the daughter. So I will say, I noticed a couple correlations. So I felt like some uh, some pieces of Pirates of the Caribbean kind of fell in, in this. So like okay. you had the blacksmith, it's like apprentice who falls in love with the, like, I don't know, Commodore's daughter. In 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 uh, in pirates, right. who's so, like being courted by like a bigger, like a higher status guy? Yeah, yeah. Didn't know if that was coincidental or not, but I kind of I kind of picked up those vibes. I that's interesting. My guess is it's coincidental because I know the pirate script. Like I think it's Terry Russo and some other is like it's a writing team. I can't remember the two names, but 
they i know they worked on that pirate script for like years before it ever actually was produced so i'm and then verbinski doesn't write any of his stuff so i don't know if he would have altered it but you know it's interesting nonetheless so what else we got we have the story of the gun stands out i've brought up the sylvester score is uh, i'm a fan of i felt the um like the, the gandolfini twist at the end definitely got me like i wasn't expecting um like that to happen i mean spoilers i guess but yeah, yeah just go ahead and tell us um, uh yeah i mean basically you know you spend the whole time she's building up a relationship with james gandolfini you don't know what's going to happen when they get to Brad Pitt and the gun is exchanged because he's got this feeling that he's going to be killed anyway. So and you don't know what Gandolfini is going to do. He seems like he just wants the gun because it's his job to get it and everything's going to go fine. Um, and then when they're finally together and they're on their way to get go to the gun, like he, him and Julia Roberts get another argument because they're always arguing and then they swerve off the road. And Julia Roberts, like, storms off. She's just walking down the street. Uh, Gandolfini hits the glove compartment in anger and sees that the gun is there. Um, and he, Brad Pitt is outside trying to fix the tire. And Gandolfini's just about to shoot him. And then he stops because there's cars driving by. But then he decides, I guess, I think, it's, I think he looks over to Julia Roberts again and maybe decides not to shoot him. And he's like, let me try changing the tire, and then Brad Pitt pulls out his gun to shoot James Gandolfini because he just doesn't trust anyone at this point. And then they both turn, and there's a gunshot, and you hear, you know, Julia Roberts hears it, and she walks back, so you don't know who got shot. And it turns out that Brad Pitt killed James Gandolfini because he knew that wasn't who he says he was because who he was claiming to be was someone else previously in the movie we had seen, and Brad Pitt knew it because he had met the guy before, and Gandolfini didn't know that, so, like, yeah, that was the thing. Where I, was, I did not expect him to go that route because it felt like like Julia Roberts and Gandolfini had this legitimate relationship. And they just kind of like... And I think that was real. I, I think they did. But yeah, yes. yeah. I'm saying, yeah, I definitely... Yeah, I think it, it was real. And and maybe this... I don't know, because like now you don't know if Gandolfini was actually going to kill Brad Pitt. Um, so was he like actually right in shooting him? Because um, she was upset when it happened and she was legitimately friends with him so it's kind of this weird moment yeah the basic the basic idea on the switch is that gandolfini kidnaps her there's two two hitmen after her in this mall bathroom and one of them seemingly kills the other one we find out later that the other one didn't die because he's wearing a vest but uh gandolfini ends up being the one to kidnap her and he tells her that his name is leroy and that's the name that she has and that we're operating with for the entire movie Meanwhile, Brad Pitt is aware that a Leroy exists and he's supposed to be this dangerous killer. And then they meet up later and all all three of them are together. And we don't know it as an audience, but we can tell Brad Pitt doesn't really trust him. And we find out later then and after this reveal that Gandolfini has been impersonating Leroy, that the other guy that was killed uh, later was killed actually was Leroy. So this whole time we've been building kind of this relationship and gandolfini has been presented as sort of this like mobster who sort of wants out or wants the option of being out and seeing a different life that he could take. 
And that's where I think a lot of this kind of Oscar talk is coming from is that there's some definite, you know, interesting aspects of his character that make him, you know, a little deeper than he easily could be. Yeah. And then we have this switch and then Brad Pitt ends up killing him. But I, my interpretation of Gandolfini seeing Julie Roberts is first he stops because cars are driving by and he doesn't want to attract attention. And then he sees her walking and he doesn't want to do that to her. Like he doesn't want to mm-hmm. kill Jerry because presumably he would have to kill her if he kills Jerry. But also I think he didn't want to kill Jerry because of what it would do to her. So I think that was him change. Like that was his moment mm-hmm. of change, I think is the idea. Yeah. And Brad Pitt doesn't know that. So Brad Pitt just shoots him in the fucking head. Oops. Classic pit. <laughs> Yeah, so actually, I have a quick question about the whole James Gandolfini thing. So I was I was curious if you guys were able to follow kind of like the the inner workings of the plot in that way. So the way I, I gather it, Brad Pitt gets into an accident earlier on in the movie, and a guy goes to jail who's like kind of like the head boss of his, his mob group or whatever. Margulies. He wants this gun, so he sends Brad Pitt specifically – and his grandson gets killed by a stray bullet, right? It was stray. It was yeah. a complete yeah. accident. Yeah. Pick yeah. up on that initially. And then they think Brad Pitt's double-crossing him. So then does Gene Hackman send Gandolfini? Or does he send the other guy, uh, the character termed as the well-dressed black man? What a character name. Um, well, that's, so does he... that's because that character actually is Leroy, though. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I know. So. so does he send Leroy, and then Bob Balaban sends Gandolfini? Or who sends who? Because I wasn't able to pick up on, like, all right, which side is Gandolfini on, and which side is... So Bob, Bob, or, uh, Bob Balaban definitely sends Gandolfini because when they're... Gandolfini's on the phone. When Jerry doesn't show up, Gandolfini's on the phone, and he's there with uh, Julie Roberts' character, whatever her name is. They're there at the airport. He's talking. He calls someone. We cut to Bob Balaban, who's like the second in command for this mob. Uh, somehow Bob Balaban, of all people, is, is the second in command for a mob. But uh, he he's told that someone is holding on the phone. And so that's kind of your first clue, I think, to know that something might be weird. But then later, Brad Pitt, when he kills Gandolfini or when he's talking to him prior to, I can't remember the exact sequence of events. Basically, he reveals like, when he figures it out, he's like, oh, we'll send Jerry down there. Brad Pitt's piecing things together. And so what happened was Bob Balaban is trying to double cross everyone. He's trying to get the gun for himself because the gun is, we're told, very valuable. Um, Mr. Margulies is closing down the operations, according to Bob Balaban. So he doesn't like that. He wants like one last score is the implication of like, all right, well, I'll make $500,000 or whatever you could sell this for. I don't know. They never put a price on it. Uh, So he's the one who sends Gandolfini to do it. So presumably then the actual Leroy who's black was sent by Margulies. But that point is pretty fuzzy. I think it was like Balaban had sent both, like one publicly and one privately. Like Balaban's like, okay, we're sending Leroy, but then also like knowing what was going on kind of with Margulies trying to get out, he's like, okay, I'm going to send Gandolfini now, and that's the one that I'm actually sending. Yeah. Yeah, because it was one of those instances when like 
Brad Pitt calls out like, they didn't think I'd know, but I'd met Leroy and he's black. And I was like, oh shit. And then I was like, wait, who sent him? Like, is this supposed to be like, uh, that is a twist, but uh, is it supposed to hit me harder? Like, (laughs) yeah, I think Doug's probably right. It probably makes more sense since Bob Balaban has been sort of orchestrating all of this, the both public and private aspects of it that as public as the mob is. Uh, that Margulies probably is not directly doing anything. Because later, Margulies says he, the reason he's like has the like Mexican family working for him is because he didn't know who else he could trust. Which I do want to say, that is one of my favorite parts of the movie is when Mr. Margulies has been talked about the whole time, and then all of a sudden he shows up near the end, and it's Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman gives a really solid, small cameo performance. Um, but it's just him just showing up just has this weight of like, oh, fuck, Gene Hackman's in this. And it was not something that was advertised at the time. So I remember when I saw it in the theater, I was like, oh, sweet. So I still think it really packs a punch when he shows up on screen. Yeah, and he takes he takes control of the, the whole scene and, and just gives that, like you said, powerful, short performance. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and his his scene ends really well, too, because uh, Jerry's been, like, run ragged this whole time, and he's kind of fed up with everyone. He sort of tells off this incredibly powerful mob boss, we're told. And finally, after hearing the full story of the gun, Jerry realizes, like, okay, I, I need to help this guy. I need to, like, finish this. And he says, basically, like, if we do this, we're square. And Hackman just says, I'll owe you. And just like this, like total Gene Hackman, like gravitas moment. Um, it just works super well, I think. Yeah, all that did was make me real sad that like Gene Hackman hasn't made a movie since like Welcome to Mooseport. Oh, yes. <laughs> the fact that Welcome to Mooseport is his last film role has made me sad for years. <laughs> like really, you couldn't show up for like five minutes like he does here. Just like completely just knock it out of the park and then go back to his retirement home well, what's, what's really <laughs> shitty is that he could have gone out on royal tenenbaums like that's the one you leave on and then he stuck <laughs> around and, uh yeah it's uh yeah so i mean he only did a couple other movies after royal tenenbaums and welcome to mooseport was the last one and he didn't have to make it gene you did not have to do that <laughs> so here's a question what's a worse movie to go out on welcome to mooseport or uh league of extraordinary gentlemen uh well connery technically did one after that because he started an even worse i've never seen it but i'm sure it's even worse he did a scottish computer animated film called sir billy that looks horrible it's the worst animation you've ever seen and he did a voice for it and it it looks terrible so that has to be worse than league which i think is just kind of misguided that one for me is up there also if we're talking last roles for major Hollywood stars, the last role for Orson Welles was the voice of Unicron in the Transformers <laughs> movie. Hey, that's a good last role to go out on, right? I don't know. That movie is bad. All right, back to the Mexican. Um, so, yeah, where were we before we jumped into... We were just talking... Gene Hackman. Yeah, before the Gene Hackman stuff, we're talking about some plot elements or or just kind of the mechanizations of how the, you know, reveals worked, I think. Yeah, let's let's dig in a little bit on what are some other holes like that or issues that we saw, because there were a couple things that I was noting that didn't make a ton of sense to me. 
Well, I think Doug mentioned earlier about J.K. Simmons' character that just he, he didn't get a final anything really, yeah. and I I didn't realize that until he said it. I was like, yeah, he wasn't. He didn't get redeemed, and he also didn't get shot. Yeah, so because Brad Pitt goes back because he realizes he has his passport, and he goes back to where he handcuffed J.K. Simmons in the, in the pawn shop because J.K. Simmons that... was gonna like betray him, uh, essentially like yeah. on orders yeah. from his boss. Yeah, um, but yeah, he just so Brad, he disappears. Yeah, so, yeah. Then you see, oh, he's gone. So he must he escaped. He's somewhere doing something, and then he just doesn't show up again. Let uh, me let me tell you there. Okay, so there are three three deleted scenes um, <laughs> on the oh, DVD oh, version. Before you before you go, Doug, because uh, I, I I just I had a prediction. There's another character that also disappears that I wondered if maybe they did some kind of J.K. Simmons and this character clashing heads scene. Um, before Doug even said there were deleted scenes. So earlier in the film, Bob Balaban is talking to some like third in command dude who's a tough dude and he's loyal to Mr. Margulies. And that dude starts to get the sense of, oh, wait, we're like, we're going to sell him out. We're going to like, you know, take this gun and you're, you're trying to screw over Mr. Margulies. And Bob Balaban gives him this little speech of, hey, he's going to close us down. He's changed from when he was in prison and you're not going to get a severance package, are you? And that it, it seems like that guy is like switching sides in that moment, which, but it's left kind of open of, well, is that guy switching sides or is he just making Bob Balaban think he's switching sides? And then that character is never seen or heard from again. So there's literally like no payoff with that guy finding out stuff about this gun that, you know, that there's like backstabbing. So when Jimmy had brought up that J.K. Simmons disappeared, I wondered if those two characters maybe met and maybe there's some kind of shootout or fight or something. So what happened, Doug? So well, let me rip that Band-Aid first. That guy has nothing to do with it. Um, I'm going to stay I, back and, and monitor the fax machine. Well, <laughs> let me say this. like, I do think that that guy, that conversation had a purpose. That character didn't have a purpose, though. Like In that moment, the character is the audience, right? Sure. And like Balaban needs someone to explain how he's you know, eventually going to double cross margulies and so he's explaining it to this dude so that the audience can be like oh i see kind of see what's good i think that was the purpose of that that whole scene but let me jump into the jk simmons stuff which is pretty fun um okay so last we saw jk simmons character uh he's handcuffed uh along with the pawn shop owner um inside of the pawn shop uh and they're they're just handcuffed in there and so they they have to you know somehow get out or whatever so the first scene is the two of them and it's kind of a comedic thing the two of them uh are still handcuffed except hours have passed and they're you know they're they're sweating and and they're um playing cards with their like one hand that's not handcuffed and they're just like talking uh, kind of like about life and it's just kind of this weird like oh they they became friends jk simmons and, and joe the pawn shop owner and then there's the second deleted scene. They're still in there, except now they're building this tremendous house of cards, and it's like four feet tall, and they're working on it together. And like hours and hours have passed, and it's almost morning, and they're waiting for Joe's daughter to come into the shop in the morning to like open and and re- and rescue them. Um, and J- uh, Joe, the pawn shop owner, is trying to convince J.K. Simmons to marry his daughter so that she can go to America and you know live an live an American life. And J.K. Simmons is like, you know, love's not for me. Like I've seen what it did to 
to the Brad Pitt and Julie Roberts characters, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to stay out of the whole love thing. And then like right after that, in a comedic way, the door opens and the daughter comes in and this bright light and she's, you know, gorgeous. And, and he just like looks up like he's love at first sight with Joe, the pawn shop's daughter. And then the scene cuts. And then, um, and then interesting enough, when, when Brad Pitt comes back to look for JK Simmons, cause they, swapped passports accidentally and he can't get out of the country um you see the house of cards that they built and it's fallen uh on the ground in that scene which is interesting the last deleted scene is jk simmons wedding with the joe's joe's daughter uh and there's this huge dancing you know scene in the wedding and julia roberts and brad pitt are there together and then uh J.K. Simmons and Brad Pitt exchange passports so that he can then get, <laughs> get out of the country. And uh, J.K. Simmons, you know, who was this kind of like a anti-love, you know, character is now is now preaching to Brad Pitt about, you know, you know, that's a good one and you ought to really hang on. And then love is, you know, what it's all about. I've realized <laughs> that's it. Hmm. Well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> So I'm glad I can it just was imagine cut. JK Simmons over there like they cut out like 30 minutes of my movie. Right. <laughs> this is going to be a big break for me. Yeah. <laughs> Made a house of cards. <laughs> uh, yeah, Spider-Man movies go and he was doing okay. Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> yeah, there was another you know, uh, right there, there was another like pretty questionable bit that I never thought about because I've seen, I saw the movie when it originally came out, and then I watched it a few years ago to see if it was worth owning. Because, like I said, I I have a lot of Verbinski movies. I like a lot of his stuff, but there's one bit that I had never picked up on before that I don't know if a deleted scene helps explain this or if it's just a gigantic, I think a gigantic plot hole. So early on in the film, Brad Pitt gets the gun in his possession. He's with Mr. Margulies's nephew or grand grandson. Grandson, he doesn't know it, but that's so somehow Margulies's grandson has tracked the gun down and that's who Brad Pitt gets it from. Why Margulies's grandson can't deliver it to his own grandfather, I don't know. But that aside, Brad Pitt is supposed to get it from him and then things happen. The guy dies accidentally, but then Brad Pitt's car is stolen by what appear to be just some like rando mexicans that are just like just happened by the car and they just want to like i think two car two cars are stolen because the kid's car is there as well or is it just one i think it was just one one. okay um so he steals car and his car has the gun in it so that propels the plot forward of you know he can't go back anywhere if he doesn't have the gun so then by happenstance later in the movie, he runs across these same people because he comes across the car and he pulls a gun on them. This is a good, you know, five, six scenes later in the movie. So it, there's some time has passed. He pulls a gun on them. He robs them back, takes back everything they've taken, including the gun, takes back his car and drives off until he has his next problem. So that all plays fine on a first viewing but then later we find out oh, he, he kidnaps one of the guys and, and wounds him to kind of keep him from coming after him and, you know, being a fly in the ointment, he says. But then you get near the end and you find out that these guys were actually working for Mr. Margulies, that they're actually like, like related to or the men of the 
like great grandson of the original guns owner the 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 lover of the gunsmith's daughter so we find out that there's this big family connection and they end up being people who are tied in with margulies so if they had their gun in their possession for a while why didn't they drive straight to mr margulies and give him the gun like how did brad pitt even have the opportunity to rob them back because he doesn't track them down when he he gets robbed it's night and when he tracks them down and he finds them just randomly he just randomly comes across them it's daytime so at least like eight to ten hours have passed um i would think i don't think he was out of jail yet no yeah margulies didn't get out of jail till the scene he showed up but even if that's so they they but yeah they, they end up going to the old man's house and that's who margulies the old man is is who margulies is really trying to return the gun to these men i think know that old man yeah so like why, why wouldn't they just bring it straight there yeah like like they had it in their possession and they were like yeah just holding it and fucking around it, it yeah like incompetent. I, I, until, I you find out, until you find out their yeah. role at the end it's not a problem but once you find out what they're actually doing it doesn't make any sense yeah because he finds them at like a bar or something so yeah. i don't know maybe yeah maybe they, they could have brought it straight there but didn't but they didn't even call him to say hey we have it um Perhaps, uh, yeah, you're right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense knowing what their motive was the whole time, because they, it seemed like they did know that old man at the end. So it wasn't just, and they seem to they be taking it. They seem to be taking it seriously too. It's not just like, oh, we're hired yeah. for this job. Like they seem to like buy right. buy into they, they the idea that this in. is like a point of honor that it has yeah. to be returned. And then they just got drunk in celebration, and he happened to yeah. find them. Maybe I don't know. Like. That, you know, in their mind, perhaps they, I mean, they had no re- reason to think that Brad Pitt would find them again. It just, they underestimated, you know, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, mission accomplished. You know, why would this guy stumble upon us randomly mm-hmm. later? I think it brings up like a similar issue to like Brad Pitt's character faults and this, there's a connection here because I feel like these type of things are forgivable if it's truly a comedy. Like in, in a comedy, you're like, oh, yeah random stuff happens and you know that lends to some of the funniness but but if it's you know mixing genres and it's trying to be a thriller or a drama or something like this then it's like okay well we want we want answers to these plot holes you know whereas in the comedy it's like who cares yeah well in a comedy that this kind of stuff like if you're the people who are robbing people or the people who are in the mob or whatever if they're fuck-ups that can all be seen as intentional like that can be like the big lebowski is also a thriller comedy but it's very heavily on the comedy side and so when characters are just total fuck-ups including the dude well that's just part of the jokes of it like even when the characters like the 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 rug peers at the beginning are you know total idiots like all right well they're just supposed to be like kind of stupid lackeys they're not supposed to be anything special but yeah this movie is pulling itself in a lot of directions and yeah, I don't know that it's always successful, which I will, let's, let's lead into, um, that was one question we had, which was, why do we think this isn't as well known or as well received? It did, it did make some money. It wasn't a failure, but, uh, I'm curious, like where everybody falls on it. I think people have some different takes. One thing I thought was possibly it's not quirky enough 
or I would say it's it's too quirky for the average film or average film goer. Like like I don't picture a lot of people's moms going to this movie. Like if they are like going to see like a Brad Pitt Julia Roberts movie, like I think because it's at times a western and at times a romantic comedy and at times a goofy thriller, like that it might feel like they can't get a grip on it and you don't have the leads together most of the movie. So I could see general audiences being kind of like, what? Um, but then for like big time film fans who will seek out weirder stuff or will appreciate things that are more unique or whatever, I feel it doesn't go far enough so that it's like, oh, this is weird and cool and I'm, I'm into it. It's like it's kind of on the fringes. It's between like a very pedestrian normal movie and on the fringes of being something more artsy and unusual it exists in this kind of unusual in between, I think. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I think I kind of agree in that, like, you know, because this is a Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts movie, you compare it to other Brad Pitt movies and Julia Roberts movies. And I was actually looking up to see like, all right, where in their, in their like pantheon of movies did this fall? And it just seems like something that's like easily overlooked because it's kind of just like a B minus, you know, like, Brad Pitt was coming off of Fight Club and Snatch before this. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. soon after, it was Ocean's Eleven. And, uh, you know, that's where I think he kind of really, like, blew up. It was, like, Ocean's Eleven and Troy. Uh, and that's where it become, like, all right, now Brad Pitt's, like, this, you know, hugely charismatic guy. And he becomes, like, A-plus lister. I think he already, already kind of was. But still, like, Fight Club and um, Seven and Snatch were kind of, like, the smaller end. Yeah. Um. And then, you know, Julia Roberts, of course, was already like the America's sweetheart, but she was coming off of uh, her Oscar win with Aaron Brockovich. Was that, mm -hmm. and that's like, this like was the next movie that came after that. Yeah. That is, so is this one after Aaron Brockovich? The same year, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Brockovich was 2000. Okay. Yeah. This was, was 2001 and it was the same year as America's Sweethearts. Um, mm -hmm. And we're, we're also I, like. I just think it was one of those that just was, you know, easily overlooked in the pantheon of their movies. Like. It's not your favorite Julia Roberts movie. It's not your favorite Brad Pitt movie. It's just kind of a movie that they did together. Well, and also, like, you know, we, we know her from Pretty Woman, Runaway Bride, and various other romantic comedies. This flirts with romantic comedy aspects, but arguably the most romantic comedy aspects are stuff with her and Gandolfini. Like, if, yeah. if, you, if you dropped the thriller aspects and it was like that was her gay best friend, and then there was other scenes with her and Brad Pitt, like, most of those scenes with Gandolfini forgetting the, like that he's a cold blooded killer stuff. Like most of those scenes would play if he was just like a construction worker, she knew it would play basically the same way. And it plays more or less like uh, a romantic comedy, but then she, she's barely in any scenes with Brad Pitt. So if you're wanting a Julia Roberts romantic comedy, and that's what you're kind of used to getting from her, you do not get that from this movie, not with her and Pitt anyway. Yeah, because their relationship isn't even really resolved at the end. They're still arguing in the last scene. All right, other stuff. Uh, where do we put this? Uh, we're talking about Verbinski movies. We have a number of Verbinski fans, so what do we think of this one in comparison to his other work? Eh, you know, it was fine. <laughs> um, I mean, well, I, I was trying like, whether it's good, just like, how we think it kind of relates. You talked about like the, the pirates kind of, you know, aspect. Yeah. I will say I, I did get kind of a, 
you know, and we talked about how Brad Pitt's character didn't quite work because it's like, is he supposed to be a bumbling idiot? Is he supposed to have like just kind of some quirky, like silly things about him? And um, I think the next movie that Verbinski does is Pirates after this, right? I think it's The Ring. The Ring is the next. The Ring's next? Okay. But I could definitely see some Jack Sparrow aspects of it where it's like, you know, Jack Sparrow is also kind of like that, you know, bumbling pirate who also is able to kind of like get things to work out in his favor. But I feel like they, you know, that obviously is done in a much better version than, you know, Brad Pitt's character, but they have kind of that similar character trait. Um, And maybe this was just kind of like that stepping stone to like, all right, now we can kind of get a feel for, all right, how to really get that character to pop on screen. Mm -hmm. I would put it on the lower end of Verbinski stuff. Like, I feel like one of the best things about a lot of his films is that they're, they're really, really fun. Like even, even the ring for a horror film is a, is a, I think a fun horror film and and obviously Mm -hmm. pirates are super entertaining. And like, well, his first film that he directed was uh, Mouse Hunt. Mouse Hunt, Mouse Hunt oh, is way better than anyone think... would expect. Mouse yeah. Hunt uh, put me on the floor laughing when I was 12 years old. I loved every every second of it. But um, yeah, like the, his stuff is, is fun. I haven't seen Rango. It looked fun. I mean, what, is that is that yeah good? Okay, but like um, <laughs> I don't I don't know. This, so this is the bottom, I guess, for me of the stuff that I've seen. And it's not really bad. I'm not. I'm not even saying it's bad. I'm just saying like, Verbitsky does entertaining to like this kind of like average American audience pretty well. And this film was not that in in any sense of it. The thing that strikes me, especially thinking about his filmography, is how much smaller this movie is than other stuff he's done. Like The Weatherman is a fairly small movie. It's it's a kind of indie comedy dramedy type vibe. And so that might be the closest in sensibilities. And the ring isn't like huge. I mean, it focuses on just a handful of characters and things that are going on. Mouse hunt isn't huge, but I feel like both of those big things are happening in the ring and like with big implications and mouse hunt, like the entire house is getting destroyed and it's like very quirky and like almost Adam's family kind of vibe. The pirates movies get huge Rango has some big kind of westerny stuff going on. Lone Ranger's big, you know, gets very big. Uh, Cure for Wellness as well. So like, this is one of his smaller. Uh, I, I I wouldn't say personal. Like for a lot of directors, their smaller movies tend to be more personal. I don't I don't know that this one is or would be. But that's the thing that strikes me the most is the story of the gun is probably the biggest aspect of it because it's built up and given this real mythology to it. And that's probably why we're liking it as much as we are, but that, you know, the total screen time that that takes up is maybe like 10 to 15 minutes, maybe not even that eight, nine. Um, if you include some of Gene Hackman's scenes where he's kind of describing stuff after the story, it might be up to that amount. But yeah, you compare that to a lot of the kind of zaniness of his other movies, and it's just, it's not of the same level. So yeah, regardless of like quality or liking it or whatever, I think it just operates differently than a lot of his things. Yeah, I I also would have to put this at the bottom end. It's not, and that's not really a detriment to the movie, because I think his, you know, collection of movies is pretty impressive overall. Um, I think it's one like Mouse Hunt, which could have been a much worse movie in someone else's hands. Um, so I feel like he gets 
a lot out of the script. Um, and then, you know, he goes on and does the ring, which I feel like is way better than the original Japanese one. Um, cause I did feel really, I did see that one in theaters and remember like, like it scared me a few times and I was engaged with the story. Cause I think when you're following along with like the mystery aspect of it, it kind of turns into a pretty like fun movie to watch, even though it's like a horror movie. Um, and then obviously like, um, it kind of feels like a gritty realistic movie when she's like following all the clues to figure out what's happening. But then you get to the end and it's just like, it's really fantastical in the way that the explanation is, which is just, that's just how the story is like this. It's so it doesn't feel like it's heading toward like a magical end, but it's like, Oh, this villain imprinted herself on a VHS tape. That's the only explanation you're going to get. And it's like, well, that's just how, it's not really his fault. That's like what the movie is. So even though you kind of go on this journey, it's um, I, yeah, pretty cool in the way he does it. Um, but yeah, I think this one did feel significantly less fun than I would have expected to Doug's point. Yeah. Did you guys see uh, Time Machine 2002? Yeah. So apparently I'm just reading this now. Verbinski like directed like, half of it or the end of it or something once the director like had some sort of medical issue and Verbinski came in and like had a hand in directing it and so that's another to the fun point I mean that movie isn't really good uh, but it is it is fun it follows that kind of fun theme even though it wasn't his you know vision of it he was completing it for someone else yeah I think I remember hearing about that I've never seen that version I've seen the original one but I've never seen the, the more recent time machine it's worth a watch. Yeah, I remember thinking it was it was pretty good. Yeah. All right, uh, so uh, in summation here, would we recommend the Mexican? I would recommend you know just watching all of Urbinsky's movies. <laughs> um, this one probably wouldn't be at the top of my list to say, hey, you got to watch this. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't know in what context I would recommend this movie. If someone's like, hey, what's a good Brad Pitt movie? It probably falls like 15th or 20th on the list of Brad Pitt movies I would recommend. Same with Julia Roberts, depending on the person who's looking for a Julia Roberts movie. Like I would uh, recommend Conspiracy Theory as a uh, non-romantic comedy Julia Roberts movie before this one. Um, and then same with Verbinski. Like if, you know, it wouldn't be on top of the list of Verbinski. I guess if someone's looking for something that isn't Pirates related, then, you know, granted you have few choices in Verbinski's like filmography that isn't pirates, but you know, Hey, this is one of them. So yeah, I think it depends on who you're recommending to. Like if it's someone that super loves Pitt or Gandolfini or, or Julie Roberts, and for some reason they haven't seen this yeah, I think that they need to, it's part of their, um, you know, plethora of movies that they've done, but I, I don't know that I would recommend it to like the average film goer or even a film connoisseur. I guess I will say if someone's like looking like let's say someone watched just got into Sopranos and was like, Man, why didn't why didn't Gandolfini make more movies? Um, this would be one that I could, you know, maybe point to and be like, Hey, he's actually really good in this. Kinda does the same kind of mob, you know, mentality thing, but you know, a little bit of a different a different, you know, swirl. So maybe that would be where I would, you know, aim this at a random person who started watching Sopranos in twenty twenty. If you want Gandolfini swirls. 
Yeah, along the same lines, if you like are totally in love with Julia Roberts and just love watching like everything she does and thinks that you know she is the most beautiful woman in the world, like I do, I just enjoy watching her smile. Um, then you have to watch the film because she's good. So yeah, I like Eric. I would say I would recommend it in the sense that I think, as I said at the top of all this, I don't think Daniel or uh, I don't think Verbinski has made a bad film yet uh some of his films are definitely stronger than others i've at least enjoyed all of his films and i enjoyed this parts of it i think are quite strong parts of it i think are kind of there i agree if you chopped it down and streamlined some things it might have been more improved i think that's probably true of a lot of his movies uh that one of his drawbacks is he does make very long movies and they aren't always necessary to be as long as they are but uh i think most of them are very fun and i think this does have fun parts so yeah if uh i I would recommend his entire filmography you know there's some of those directors out there like edgar wright and some other people where just every movie they've made i would say is worth watching and then there are other directors where you know you can't say that or they hit a certain wall and they just don't make anything good anymore uh verbinski is one where i feel like all of his movies have been defendable uh up to this point anyway but you know we'll see so yeah i would recommend it uh with that kind of caveat but knowing that it definitely is a movie that has some problems though if you are a big fan of kind of comedic thrillers if you like tarantino if you like coen brothers if you like other movies that have that kind of vibe to it maybe this is something you would embrace more so because it might be kind of like a little hidden gem if you're big into those kind of movies anyway all right so that is the 2001 mexican by gore verbinski so we will be uh, we're recording these well in advance here uh we haven't released any just yet we're here uh, about the middle of august but we do have a number of halloween episodes coming up and that is likely what will be coming up next. I don't think there'll be another non-Halloween episode from this one to the first Halloween one. So the first Halloween episode that we will be watching is uh, 1978's Magic with Anthony Hopkins. So that is likely what you will be hearing next. So see you then.